The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello and welcome to CPR Unplugged. I am your host, Jess, whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever you have going on today. Thank you for joining me. Today, I am joined by a very special friend and battle buddy, Army combat veteran, Michael Kemp. Michael, thank you so much for joining us from sunny Florida. Thank you so much for having me. And it is most indeed sunny here. Quite, quite the spectacular bit of weather, as always in Florida. I'm curious about your cultural heritage. We're going to be talking a little bit about your time in service, but also you are an artist. I would never (laughs) claim, honestly, to be an artist, but I think that's just probably what most artists say. I just dabble in my personal opinion. But um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I do enjoy, I do enjoy painting very, very, very much. And I just kind of stumbled into it one morning and it surprisingly seems to have taken off from there. Okay. So when, how old were you when you started kind of getting into art? Oh, actually I can remember, this is actually really funny. I can remember I was, it was my freshman year of high school and I was sitting in um, my strategies class and I was not doing my homework as I should have been. I was doodling on a piece of paper and I was uh, attempting to write a quote uh, that I had heard from a a song and the background was supposed to be like a a brick wall and it was supposed to be kind of a style of graffiti and it was terrible. But at the time I thought (laughs) it was awesome because, you know, I was in high school, freshman, thinking I'm top of the world. But that's when I really actually started to kind of really dig in because I didn't start with painting. I started with graffiti art. So, and that was in like 2001, I believe. Very appropriate for the time, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about, you're from Arizona. I am actually, I was born in Arizona. I was born on the Gila River Indian Reservation. And uh, it was, uh, I don't have too many memories of entirely. I was very, very young uh, before I ended up getting placed into foster care and then adopted. Uh, my adoptive family uh, did the best that they could to really keep me in tune with uh, the reservation. They didn't want me to lose any idea or any identity of being a part of the Pima Indian tribe. So I did frequent the reservation with them when we had the chance. I've met a number of my relatives and it's been a really really big impact on me surprisingly. Tell me a little bit about that. How has that side of your identity impacted you? Well, I grew up in a multi-racial family. So I am half Native American, half African American. I didn't don't really people will look at me and not see any Native American in me. Typically they just see African American, but they could usually sense that there's more than just that. They usually say that I look like I'm mixed with maybe some kind of Pacific Islander or Asian of some sort, which we hold relatively close features to, you know, Native Americans hold relatively close features to those people. So I, that's how I usually end up introducing myself to letting people know that I am Native American. But um, I was adopted. Both my parents were white. And my sister Kay is actually half Native American, half Mexican-American. So she looks a bit more Mexican-American than Native American. And then my older brother Lucas is full-blood Native American. So he has the, the classic, hard, strong features of exactly what most people would think a Native American would look like. And then my youngest sister, Emily, was also white. She was the birth child of my adoptive parents. So you could imagine... <laughs> you could imagine the, the identity struggles that I had. And it had never really been anything I was overly aware of until I was in the third grade. I specifically remember my mom coming to pick me up after school. And when she had walked through the door, me and my brothers and sisters were waiting for her. She had stopped to talk to the principal and I was talking to some young lady and I said, oh, there's my mom. And she said, which one? I said, the lady there talking to the principal. And she said, that can't be your mom. 
And I said, mm. why can't she be my mom? She said, you're not the same color. She doesn't look like you. Mm. And, and I remember very, very vividly in that moment, I had been extremely confused because my entire life, my family was my family. It's how we grew up. I never associated color or features or anything. I'd never associated any of that to being, oh, that, you know, I have to look like my parents or if they don't look like me, then they couldn't be my parents. That never registered. It was never a forethought whatsoever in my mind until that moment. And that, and I remember being really, really confused at that and then kind of questioning, well, what does that mean? What is Mm. it, you know, that was a very interesting thing. And it it came up a few other times in my life. Uh, We were one summer when I was in high school, we were going to a public pool and it was free for families. So if you weren't family, then you had to pay. So it was Lucas, Kay, Emily, and me all looking completely different from one another, but, you know, we're we're a family. We went to go get into the pool and they wouldn't let us in. And we said, we, why not? And they said, well, it's only free for families. And like, we are family. These are my brothers and sisters. We all have our our high school IDs, but we all have the same last name. And that woman said, well, you can't be a family. None of you look alike. Mm -hmm. And I was like, my God, like we were really taken back by that. It was, Mm -hmm. uh, it's very interesting. How did you reconcile that? I I think it was mostly just an understanding that we we were always, we had been raised with each other from from my earliest memories. I'd never, you know, seen Lucas or Kay or Emily. I'd never seen them as anything but my brothers and sisters, never. Mm You know, it didn't, it didn't matter. I, I don't even, it's very difficult to put into words, but it's, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who could understand, you know, who live in multiracial families or who have, you know, adopted children or anything like that. Like when you look at somebody and they're your family, they're your family. There's no if, ands, or buts. There's nothing to, to change or, or, or put in the way of that. It's your brother, it's your, it's your sister, it's your mom, it's your dad, it's your, it doesn't matter, it's your family. And I, and I think that's just one of the things that kind of really allowed all of that to kind of just roll off the back. We were taken back at times. I was certainly taken back at times and extremely frustrated at the ignorance of it all. Mm-hmm. But ultimately it was just chalk it up to exactly that it's well I'm so sorry that you feel that way but yes this is my family and yes this is my sister and yes you're going to let us in and we're going to go swimming so deal with it <laughs> you know <laughs> that's basically how it went right and some disclosure here I've known you for a long time a very and- long time <laughs> I remember going to your house to watch old Kung Fu movies when we were younger (laughs) and the feeling in your home was just so, if you could distill the feeling of family, right. And like bottle it up. That was always the feeling that I had when I was in your home. It was so obvious the way that you interacted and the love that you had for each other and the fierce loyalty, right. There was like no question in my mind that like, yes, this is family. This is what family feels like. Yes, and that was definitely largely in part to, you know, my my mom, you know, we could all say that we've learned specific things from our parents. I could tell you that uh, the things that I've learned from my mom were love and um, patience and acceptance. If it was those three things that I learned from her, it was absolutely that. And, um, and, and, it, and it, was, it was clear, it was very, very clear that, you know, that's how our family our our household ran in terms of the dynamic and she was and my mom was not one to tiptoe around anything she was not a subtle woman she Mm -hmm. she was not you know she was a she was more thorns than rose but still smelled sweet but (laughs) you could you could you could never make it past her without getting pricked by something that's just the way that she was but I I kind of feel that she kind of had to be that way too because you know, you got to think at the time, I was born in 1985. So we're looking at the late 80s, early 90s. And even then there was still, it was still a, somewhat of a turbulent time in a lot of ways. But even more so, you have two white people trying to adopt 
three Native American children from the reservation. So, you know, I'm half, like I said, I'm half Native American, half African American, K, half Mexican American, half Native American, and Lucas full blood Native American. We all came from the same tribe. We all came from the same reservation. So this in and of itself was highly, highly controversial. And my, my mom and dad had to jump through every hoop there was ever to jump through, plus some that they just decided to make up on the fly because they're, you know, they're like, oh, here we go. It's the ancient story. We got white people taking Native American babies and they're going to brainwash them and they're going to make them forget their heritage and they're going to tell them that, you know, oh, we'll teach you how to be civil and that's just not the life for you, blah, 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 blah. You know, so it was just, it was just intense. And so that, that resonated for a while throughout a majority of our lives. But we did, we did make it through and my mom was very, very, strong in that aspect but that's what we emulated which is why we didn't you know didn't suffer all too much when it came to the ignorances of the world at times mm-hmm. your mom was a tough lady and she did not take excuses for nothing oh my goodness no she did not oh <laughs> man that woman oh i just let's see okay so i can remember see i was every everybody has that one particular family member who they could be like, hey, who was the one that caused the most trouble? Well, guess what? I hold the blue ribbon in that. <laughs> I am the world champ. I am the undefeated, undeniable master of mischief when I was a kid. My God, I literally almost burnt the house down. That, that, <laughs> it was just that, oh God, I just don't know how anybody survived me. But um, but she was, oh, I'd rather be safer in Alcatraz for some of the times that she got mad at me for doing something stupid. I'll tell you that. (laughs) So how did she keep you connected to your Native American heritage? She actually, when I was younger, she would actually drive me all the way back out to the reservation to meet with family members, uh, aunts, uncles, cousins. And she continued that throughout a majority of my life. She would be in touch with a number of other, a number of other tribal members, and she would you know, arrange meetings. I've met, I have other brothers and sisters that at the time I hadn't known about because she had reached out and tried to track them down. And she would um, read stories. She would make me read books about my tribe. She would take me out there and make me listen to the elders tell stories and, and talk about you know things. And and I learned the history of our tribe and how you know, just, just what it, what it, what we were, what we are. And she was very adamant about that. She did not want me to lose my connection to that, to that heritage because it was, it was so important. So with such a deep rooted sense of community and family in Arizona, what was it like for you enlisting in the army, leaving home? What was that experience like? Well, it, it was, it was, it was an adventure and actually a little bit of a relief. Um, when I was younger, my mom had gotten ill quite frequently. And as she continued to get ill, she would be away from home longer and longer. So it would it would um, kind of, it, it, we were alone a lot. So I, that's how I ended up getting in a lot of trouble. So moving past all of that, I, I eventually tried to get a job when I got out of high school, but a lot of the people who I associated with were always coming around my place of business and, and, and not really allowing me to work coming in and loitering. And I got fired from my first job because of that. So it was, it was one of those things where I had spent so much time in Arizona for such a long time and kind of made not the best name for myself with a number of different crowds. And so I felt that in order for me to grow, I had to leave, I had to move. And I did. And, and, and I ended up in California I tried to join the police force out there, but the recession had hit. They started doing layoffs. Um, I got a letter accepting me to the academy, but due to budgetary constraints, they were no longer able to support cadets going through. So at that point I decided, Mm -hmm. well, the army is always hiring. And um, that's when I decided to join the service. And it um, it was pretty scary at first. And I know that at one point I did honestly think that I may have made a mistake, but, um, but I stuck through and, you know, that tenacity is, is something that's hard grained in me. So I was, um, I was, I was a little, a little worried, a little afraid at first when I, when I had left, 
and leaving my entire family behind. Everybody, my aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, my mom, my dad, my nearly my entire family and extended family unit is based in Arizona. They were very close knit, very, very, very close family. And um, I, I grew up with them, you know, spent, I spent so much time with all of them. I spent more time at my aunt's house with my cousin than I did in my own house most times. So leaving was a big, 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 big step for me, but I don't regret having done it because I learned a lot. So tell me a little bit about your time in the military and you're, you're welcome to share whatever you like and also how, what role did art play in that for you? Did you continue to kind of have an artistic outlet while you were in the military or is that something you set aside? I actually did. And it, it kind of continued pretty early on. So I, uh, I remember my, my basic training was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And um, I remember we, we, we didn't, so they have, they have two separate parts of Oh, the, the, the base, the Fort Sill. So one side is a training side and the other is the active actual station. So they have a staging area and you have to go through this whole checking in where you get all your gear and you get all this other stuff. And then they go to the, you go to the other side of the tracks is what they called it. And that's where the basic training side was where all the drill sergeants were and all that good fun stuff. And uh, I remember I saw you I remember unbeknownst to both of us we we enlisted in the military at the same time and we didn't didn't know and we ran into each other in basic training yeah that was that was wild that was insane so so that was basic training I did the whole basic training thing and then when I got to AIT it became much more because in basic training is extremely regimented you are are you you, everything you do is done at a command. The way you you walk when they tell you, you eat when they tell you, you sleep when they tell you, you go to the bathroom when they tell you. It's that's it's literally that you are being retaught how to be what they want you to be. And then when you get to AIT, it actually shifts a little bit more to somewhat of a more like a college environment. You're no longer in barracks you have uh well they're still technically called barracks but you know in basic training you're these giant bays tons of bunks everybody's your entire platoon is in there which is upward of like 60 people you know and but when you get to ait which is advanced individual training it becomes more like a college environment so you have uh your own room with three other roommates and it's just the four of you and it's very much looks like a college dorm so when i was in ait when we had downtime, I was still doing graffiti art. And a lot of people had seen the art that I was doing and started requesting that I draw specific things for them and more specifically designing tattoos for them. Mm. And I Someone did, out actually. there is wearing original <laughs> Michael Kemp as a tattoo. I'm jealous. Uh, yeah, it's probably one of those things that the people are asking about it. They're like, yeah, that's when I was stupid and I was in the IT and I thought it'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I, that's, art did continue. Um, it, it felt nice. I don't know exactly what it was. It just felt like in a world currently where you have very little control and, and really, you know, no, no sense of, no sense of self entirely and you know, much of what you thought you were has pretty much been erased, which is, that's the process. You know, individuality is not conducive to military lifestyle and that's what they have to scrub out of you. But it, that one particular part of myself remained. And I, I held, I held on to that. I even remember going to the PX when we had the time to and getting colored pencils. And I remember it was really, 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 really cool because I was just looking at them you know, I was like, oh my God, I'm seeing multiple colors now other than OD green <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and various shades of beige and camouflage. Um, and I remember just kind of really looking at these colored pencils and staring at them for a while, just admiring the colors. And then I, I was using them to draw and, you know, people started, like I said, people were just like, hey, can you draw this for me? And oh, I think this would, I want a tattoo that says this and this and this. And then, so I was doing that for people out of my, my, dorm barracks room you know on top of making a list for fire guard and pissing people off because i put them on double shifts <laughs> still getting in trouble 
still causing issues. <laughs> so eventually, I'm going to fast forward a little bit here. You deployed to an active combat zone. I did. And it was, uh, oh, let me see, how do I describe that? I remember they told us, you know, they we'd gotten orders and they uh, were packing up the connexes, doing all the good stuff that we had to do. The wind did the training and all that good stuff. And then um, that first time we ended up not going, which was a bit of a relief. But then after I got to my second duty station, Germany, we kicked out from there. And um, that was a, it was a really, really exhilarating maybe, <laughs> maybe that's one, because there was a lot going on. It was exciting. Um, it was an adventure. But it was very eye-opening in a lot of ways, too, when you, know, you see a, another country, a third world country at that for the first time, and you look at the way that you, know, you see the world in a way that you've never seen it before. It's, uh, it's definitely something you never forget. But the bonds and the family and the, 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 the relationships I forged during that time are unbreakable, and I wouldn't trade them for anything. I learned a lot about myself while I was there. I learned what my strength was. I learned how, how far I could push myself. I learned how much I was, I was willing to endure just to ensure that I was coming home safe and that other people were coming home safe. And I, I found out that I was a hell of a lot stronger than I thought I was physically and mentally and definitely emotionally. But there were, there, you know, it, it, it kind of goes by in a rush. You don't have a, a whole hell of a lot of time to really come to grips with everything that's happening. You don't have time to sit and take that inventory of your thoughts and your emotions when you're flying by the seat of your pants. And you are most definitely flying by the seat of your pants. You're, you're moving. And even, even when you're down, it doesn't really seem like you have a hell of, like that it's downtime. So it was, um, it was a very 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 interesting adventure to say the least so i didn't have any chance to continue any art during that time unfortunately <laughs> well i can imagine right like <laughs> <laughs> just give me a second i need my stretch pad <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad i packed my colored pencils for this exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> i'll draw you something just give me a quick minute <laughs> so you discharged from the military and you suffered a TBI while you were in? I did. I got rattled a few times. Still have the scars to prove it. And probably a little bit of little parting gifts inside my head. Um, that was a very, that, that sucked. The, the, I'm just going to flat out say it. That oh, shit, that fucking sucked a lot. And um, I remember coming, trying to recover from that was, a, was hell. I hated it. I hated every damn minute of it. I, oh my God. So I remember a while after I'd gotten out of the hospital and trying to get back into being normal, I had to take all these, well, actually I hadn't had to really do anything. I, I got out of the hospital and I went through all the, all the steps that you usually have to go through after you sustain specific injuries, trying to get back into the step of things. And I remember we were out running um, for PT. I was with my sergeant and um, we were passing this building, some tent of some sort or whatever i can't remember specifically but it had always been there and i remember i didn't i didn't recognize it i didn't recognize the route we were running even though it's the same route that we ran every damn time and i remember i talked to my sergeant while we were running i said sergeant when did that building go up when did that when did that tent come up and he's like what are you talking about and i'm like that right there that's brand freaking new and he's like no it's not and i'm like yes it is it's never that wasn't there that hasn't been there before and he said that's always been there and i was like are you sure about this and he's like, I swear, that's always been, it's always been there. And I said, I don't remember that at all. And he, I remember he said, well, you've suffered what is called TBI. So you're going to not, you know, it's going to be a little weird for you. And, I, and that was kind of like the first thing when I noticed things had really changed for me. And then another thing that happened that really kicked things off is CLB was shutting things down. We've got to make sure that everything's locked up tight, put away, vehicles are staged and, you know, secure. And we did that same routine every night. Nothing changed, nothing out of the ordinary. I was always the one that went down, checked the line, 
and make sure, you know, had everybody delegated, hey guys, check the line, check the line, check the line, make sure everything's secure. And, and so I, I go, I do that, I report and say, you know, line has been checked, everything's secure. And they said, okay, run it through one more time, go back down, I want you to make absolutely sure, okay, you know, and, and that was not, that was not out of the ordinary. It was everyday normal things. And a hundred times they've asked me and a hundred times I've done it without question and with no thought as to, oh, why are you making me do this? Because it's just what needs to be done. I was always glad to do it. But I remember that one time they asked me to do it a second time and I exploded out of nowhere. And I hadn't even realized that I blew up on them until after I kind of caught myself at the tail end of it, that I realized I was screaming at my higher command. I was screaming at them. And I, when I came to, you know, the, the, my, my platoon leader and my platoon sergeant are, you know, my platoon sergeant's leaning back in his chair, like kind of leaning back in his chair and kind of looking at me a little, a little startled. And I'm, I realize I'm leaning over the desk and I got like a knife hand pointing it in his face. And I'm, um, my platoon leader had stood up and he's, he's standing up and he's kind of like in this ready position, like he's about to grab me. And then I kind of look around the room and I realize everybody's just staring at me like wide-eyed, like, oh my God, because I had never done anything like that before. And so, you know, they pulled me out into the hall and, you know, I kind of broke down a little bit and I said, I don't know what happened. And I don't know why I did that. And they said, okay, we need to, we need to get you to the hospital and we need to get you to a specialist. Um, and I think it's time that we really start to really work with you on this. I remember when I was in formation, I almost passed out. I started, I was just standing there when they were, you know, doing the, the usual thing, saluting. And I remember I kind of started, I just kind of felt funny and I started to fall back, but luckily a lot of people just kind of caught me and that was another incident. So things had really changed for me. I had severe bouts of memory loss where um, I was just I would just not know where I was suddenly. I couldn't tell my, you know, my ass from my elbow. Uh, random bouts of rage. I stuttered. I developed a stutter. Uh, writing. I couldn't write certain things. Uh, the number freaking three was like Greek to me. I don't know why it was the number three, but it was always the number three. I could write every number just fine, but on the number three, it just, it was just stuck. I really had to like concentrate hard, like it was an SAT, just to write the damn number three. So that, that really messed me up. I lost a couple of um, really great opportunities because of that, because I had just um, gone through the school for becoming the unit armorer, which was a really big big deal for me at the time because I hadn't been in very long and I was already I was doing so well they're like hey look we're gonna give you this opportunity unit armorer but obviously with severe memory loss and random bouts of rage I'm fairly certain they didn't want me to be in charge and have access to all the weapons for the <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like yeah I kind of get you on that one but you know so it was it was difficult it was really 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 hard for me. And I remember I tried to, uh, I wanted to stay in, you know, they gave me the option to med board immediately. And I said, well, let's do some, let's do physical therapy. Let's do, let me send me to these clinics, send me to this specialist, send me to this, send me to this, send me to this. And they said, okay, we'll do that. We'll do that for you. If you don't want to try to get out right away, then we'll see what we can do. So they did work with me like that. And they did give me other opportunities and they did give me the help that I needed, um, but ultimately it was not, it just wasn't going to happen. So. So you discharged? Yep. I discharged. And um, it coming back after I got out was, I got to say, I would have rather gone back through being deployed than, than getting out the way that I did. You, I had always heard, you know, even before I joined the army, I'd always heard these horror stories about what it was like getting out of the military and how hard it was. And I remember at one point, I always thought, well, I don't understand why that would be so difficult. I mean, you know, what, what is it? Well, I, don't, I don't get it. It doesn't seem like it'd be that hard. And then it happened to me and holy fucking shit. <laughs> the, uh, oh, let's see. 
it, my 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 process of exiting the military, it, it, it it's just, it couldn't be, you know, it, more in line with something that would have been scripted in a movie. Every every point and everything that happened was so textbook. It's short of being called cliche, and and it was it was just you know. So we have the you know, and it happened. It exact exactly like exactly like it happened to so many. It happened to me. You know, um, I was married previously. I was married during the time that I was in the military, and and you know that 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 kind of surprisingly due to much of the things in the military it kind of went south and then you know you have that same old classic story you know wife leaves soldier wife takes soldiers money wife takes soldiers kids wife takes soldiers house soldier comes back to nothing and is homeless and that's what happened i came back and i remember it was extremely frustrating i came back i flew back to the states landed in florida went to the you know the house that was procured through my benefits by my now ex-wife who then decided she did not want me to be in the house and was not going to let me stay at the house gave me a bag of food and sent me on my way so i immediately went to the nearest um va clinic outpatient center or whatever it was and i said hey i just got out i'm fresh off of the plane i don't have a job i don't have a house i don't i don't know anybody here because I'm, I'm not from Florida. I have no family here, no friends, nobody. And I said, I need help. And they looked at me and they said, well, you're still on terminal leave. So you're technically not a veteran yet. So we can't do anything for you. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? They're like, you're, you're, you're not a, technically not a veteran yet. And I was like, well, fuck you. Okay. So then I went to, to a temp agency. And I was like, hey, I need a job. I'm like, come right this way. Sit down. And so they're, I'm sitting down and I'm trying to, I don't have, there's no, there's no way for you to like, tra- I mean, you could kind of translate whatever military experience you have into something maybe applicable to the real world, but it's extremely difficult. And most of the information that they ask for, you can't really fill out because if you've been in the military for like 10, 20 years and, and they're asking for like a five-year, you know, list of like renters history or something like that or whatever you don't have it you're like i don't have it i i I don't have anything that i could put here there's nothing that i can do to 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 quantify my time in the military that's going to be applicable here and there's so i can't there's no i can't put any information so i was struggling with that and i i had called someone over and i said i don't know what to do because this is this is where i've been i just got out of the military this is where i've been for the past damn near 10 years and I'm on, and they're like, well, are you on terminal leave right now? I'm like, yes, I'm on terminal leave right now, but I've gotten out, so I'm not going back in. I'm like, okay, well, technically you're still employed by the United States military. So we can't help you. I, I was like, I'm excuse me? Like what? So you mean to tell me, you mean to tell me I'm in this limbo this limbo. I have no job. I have no money. I don't have a house. I'm in a rental car with one bag of fucking food and my dog. And I went to the VA and they said they can't help me because I'm not a veteran yet. Still, I went to the temp agency and they said, you can't get a job because technically you're still employed by the United States military. So we can't help you. So what the fuck, where the hell am I supposed to fucking go? Like, what the, what do you expect me to do? Like, I, I just like, you know, everybody, there's so many people, they always talk about like, oh, yay, everybody's about the troops. Everybody's about, yeah, oh, our troops, our troops. Everybody's about it when it's time to go kick somebody's ass. Everybody's about it when everybody's angry at something. They want to send somebody over there. Oh, we support them, we support them, we support them. And then you come back and they they feign smiles and they feign open arms. And you're thinking you're going to fall right into these open arms that are going to scoop you up and carry you on your shoulders and be like, we got you and we're going to get you where you need to be and it's going to be okay. And it's a fucking lie. Not always, but for so many, for so many, it's a goddamn lie. I fell flat on my face and it hurt worse than anything that had ever happened to me in the military. I was sitting in a Walmart parking lot in a rental car eating fucking 
some random fucking scraps that my ex-wife gave me out of her fucking refrigerator, feeding my dog, Sam, just like, well, I don't know what we're going to do. And, um, damn, man, that was a dark, that was a dark damn time for me. I, um, I, I ended up in this Motel 6 shitty little place out in the middle of nowhere still trying to you know figure out how the hell i was going to make anything happen i got my separation pay which like an idiot i hadn't put things in place the way that they probably should have so ex-wife took half of that shit (laughs) so i finally managed to get to an apartment complex and explain to them kind of the situation i gave them the documentation that i had i said i don't have any records in history because this is where i've been i have my erb which is my enlisted records brief i have this documentation saying, this is what I've been doing. This is my pay. This is where I am now. And thankfully they, they accepted it. They were like, you know what? We, we get it. We got you. We'll take this. This will, we will take this in lieu of typically what we expect when we're going to rent an apartment somebody. And that's how I got to my feet. And that's the, that was my first good foothold was getting that apartment. And um, after that, I started swinging you know, I started, I started fighting. I was fighting tooth and nail, you know, taking, taking shots and dishing them back as hard as I could because I'd be damned if I was going to fucking die <laughs> as, a, as a, you know, in, in the civilian world after having survived so much shit in the military. And, uh, and I, I fought tooth and nail to get, to get to back, back to, you know, where, to a good spot. Yeah. I'm, I'm like holding back tears. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Where are you today? I am today. I'm still in Florida. Um, I uh, remarried to a most wonderful woman. Her name is Alyssa, and she just she was a she was a saving grace for me. That woman's a fucking pit bull. She um and you know she when I met her, you know I kind of told her, hey, just a heads up, I'm I'm kind of fucked up. I'm in. I am. I am just so, so backwards and upside down, you probably wouldn't even be able to tell that I was a human being ever at one point. So just a heads up. And she's like, okay. I was like, okay, good luck. (laughs) You're in for it. And, you know, she came and, you know, she dealt with all of my bullshit, all of my bullshit, because, and and I had a lot of it. And, you know, she she was just like, all right, we're going to do this and we're going to do it. And every time, you know, she's like, you know, she she really showed her teeth on a lot of things, and she helped me really get a, a much better, get me on my feet, get sturdy. And I remember, I, I I got my first job out here in Florida at a and W and Long John Silver's fast food spot. That shit sucked, <laughs> and I ended up not being there for very long because you know I'm coming from years of military background. I was a sergeant. And, you know, uh, uh, so regimented, I is most definitely leadership and even more so in very high stress uh, and, and chaotic situations. So, you know, there was no nothing, there wasn't a lot to kind of pull me out of that. There's no transitional point. There's no, I mean, when you get out, they kind of, they do these weird classes where they're like, oh, well, you could say that you have great, you know, skills in leadership if you were a sergeant or you, you know, I, I did well with, I work well with other people. I, I do well in leadership with groups when like, you're like, yeah, no, I led like a five man team kicking in doors and dragging people out, you know, but how does that apply to flipping burgers? You know, <laughs> I will get that burger and I will get it all the grill and it's going to do what I thought to, you know, I will scream at it until it cooks itself and it assembles itself into a nice little package. No, that doesn't work. So I struggled with that. A majority of the people that I was working with were high schoolers and high schoolers are assholes. And I didn't have time for that. You know, you want to be an asshole? I guarantee you I'm a bigger one. I promise you, you're not going to win against me. But that does not work in the civilian sector. So, you know, I, I got pulled into the office one day by the regional manager and by the owner of the store. And they said, hi, you know, <laughs> there have been a couple of issues raised about your communication you know, you're making the employees cry. <laughs> literally, literally, like, like, and, you know, they've come to the higher ups in tears about, you know, he's like, you're, you know, you're a bit abrasive. And I'm like, well, you know, and I, and I remember at that point, I was still 
you know, I, I had not gotten into any kind of anger management. I had not gotten into any kind of therapy. So I was, I was an asshole, just to say the least. But I had no empathy or sympathy or any feelings for anybody, any kind of way. It was just, you were just a, you're, you're an obstacle. And, uh, you know, these poor high school kids, you know, I'm, I'm basically like, well, suck the fuck up. Like, I don't know why the hell you're, you're crying at me. I'm just trying to tell you what to do. And you're literally in a, you know, you've melted into a puddle on the ground, you spineless little self-entitled, obnoxious, like, and then the, I was just like, oh yeah, okay. Maybe, maybe that wasn't good to scream at this poor 15 year old girl who's just trying to, you know, get money for her car before her 16th birthday. And okay, well, duly noted, moving on. From that, I went on to a, working at a car dealership, Sun Toyota, as a lube tech. And I, that one was a, a lot more comfortable. You know, it's out, outside, lifting, picking up tires, doing dirty work, getting my hands dirty again, you know, changing oil and changing, doing mild maintenance on different vehicles. The guys out there, you know, they're men's men. We all got our toolboxes. We're out there shooting the shit, talking crap. And that one felt a lot more comfortable. And then from there, I moved up to becoming a um, juvenile corrections officer, a juvenile detention officer uh, for the state of Florida. And that was just, oh, that was a, that was a, a square peg in a square hole. You know, that, that one was great. It was regimented. I didn't have to, you know, be nice because we're dealing with juvenile delinquents here. And I'm not talking like, oh, he, you know, stole some cookies. I'm talking, you know, these guys are stealing cars and doing drive-bys and, you know, moving heavy drugs. So these guys, you know, this is, and everybody always likes to, everybody thinks of a juvenile. They're like, oh, like a little sixth grader. Oh, they're, they're just kids. No, man, some of these kids are bigger than me. These guys could be like linebackers and these guys are hardened. This is not, this is not just some, I'm going to sing, I'm going to tuck you in, sing you to sleep and tell you everything's going to be better in the morning and you're going to do great. No, it's, this is like, if you, I've, I've seen, crazy stuff happened in those jails insane but it was right up my alley i was i was i was great at that job it i felt so comfortable i felt comfortable because it was something i was used to i was you know unfortunately you know violent outbursts and and fights and and, and blood and stuff like that it did I, I felt comfortable there when something happened and i could get into it and I could grab somebody and, you know, get thrown around, maybe get hit a few times, maybe get a cut or, or stabbed or something. I don't know. It, it's a very strange thing. It's a, it's a strange thing, but that felt, it felt good to me. It was familiar. It was tangible. It was recognizable pain, chaos, blood. At the time it was just home, you know, that, that feeling of adrenaline and, and purpose and, overcoming a chaotic surviving something it just it felt it felt good so it's kind of at that point another time that I kind of realized that maybe there are a couple of things I might have to deal with <laughs> so you what was your recovery process like I know art has played a big role in that for you did you also see a, a therapist or a psychiatrist or what has helped you to get to where you are now well I uh I actually woke up one morning, maybe about just a little over two years ago now, I woke up and just sat up in bed and turned to my wife and said, I'm going to paint today. <laughs> and she said, okay. She, you know, and she's always been extremely supportive of me. She didn't ask anything. She didn't say why. She didn't say, oh, do you paint? You know, she said, okay. So we jumped in the car and we went to a Hobby Lobby and we got some canvases, some paintbrushes and some paint from Walmart. And I started painting. And I can't say necessarily that I, when I paint, I can't say for sure that I'm really thinking specifically or cognitively about my experiences in the military. I know for a fact that when I paint, I go through a wide range of emotions and it's mostly just, I, I, it's directed at the canvas, but it, it very well could be just, you know, going through the emotions, but, but the canvas, there's, there's my outlet. So I'll go through initially being very inspired and even excited sometimes. And as I'm painting at some point in time, I always know that I get, I get, I get really angry 
I'll look at it and I'll get mad at it. I'll look at it and I'll say, this is trash. I can't stand this, this stupid canvas. It's a bunch of bullshit. I fucking, you know, and I'm just, I'm just so, I'm so mad at it. Sometimes I get so mad at it. I'll just take it and put it in the closet and not deal with it for months until I could take it back out and try to work on it again. But most of the time I'll get mad at it. And I'm just, I'll just say, fuck it. And just start slapping things places. And then I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) I get, I'll get frustrated. I'll get sad at some point. I just kind of stare at it and I and I start feeling doubt, you know, just very unsure about my anything. I just I'm sure about like, do I really am I really good at this? Why am I doing this? Is there really any point to me even attempting to put paint on this damn canvas? You know, I'll sit there and I'll stare at it for a long time and I'll think about just quitting it. I'll think about quitting painting completely. You know, and then, you know, I'll, I'll say, no, okay, well, just, just keep moving and just keep doing whatever and it'll come, you'll, you'll figure something out. I will not stop painting until when I look at the canvas, I feel a sense of peace. If I don't feel peace when I look at it, then it's not done. If I look at that canvas and I still feel anything, if I feel anger, if I feel anxiety, if I feel sadness, I feel frustration. If I feel anything other than looking at a canvas and if I look at a canvas and I could, I could, I could sigh and I could look at it and not want to touch it. If I could look at it and just leave it like it is and look at it and say, it's, it's fine where it is. And I'm just going to leave it right there. And I feel relaxed. I'll, I'll keep, I won't, I'll keep messing with it. I won't stop until I feel that. And Mm. I, I, you know, and again, like I said, I, I'm not necessarily thinking of, you know, combat. I'm not thinking of the struggles that I had when I came back. I'm not thinking about the people that I've lost. I, I'm not thinking about anything specifically, but I think I'm feeling all of that. Mm. So it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, and and. and I don't know why painting was the one thing I just randomly decided to do, but it, it helps. It, and then for some reason, you know, people started liking my paintings. I can't stand any of them, but you know, my dad said, I don't, it doesn't matter who gives a shit if you like it or not. If other people like it, then that's, they, they like it. So keep fucking painting. Okay, dad. Okay. I'll do it. Okay. Right. Roger that. Carry <laughs> on. So, but it, it feels good. <laughs> that's awesome. You have an event coming up. Your art is actually being featured in an exhibit at the Heard Museum on Veterans Day, 11-11-2022. Yes. Yes, indeed it is. You know, to be perfectly honest, I need to find out exactly what time because I've been flying by the seat of my pants at this entire thing. 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. I got you. You're so awesome. See, look at that. <laughs> I just paint. I did. I see. I never. I never imagined that my painting would ever become anything other than just being painting for family and friends. That's all. I, I paint and I say, "Hey, check this out. I painted this. What do you think?" People will say, "Oh, I like it." You know, I'm like, "Okay, here you go. Here's a gift." Or they'll be like, "I'll actually pay you for that." And I'm like, "You're out of your mind." But okay, you know, here you go. But um, yeah, that's it's a. Uh, I got called or they they, they had a they had a. They, what did they do they kind of put out an event thing my sister Kay messaged me and said hey check this out you need to take a look at this and they had a calling for veteran or they had a calling for Native American veteran artists and how strange is it that I fit (laughs) that exact thing I was like that's an oddly specific thing to ask for but it just so happens that hey I'm I'm all three of those things well, what do you do? So I guess I'll just give it a go. So I got in touch with the uh, director of the event, sent him some pictures of my stuff. He called me. He actually called me and he said, uh, hey, uh, I, I need to I need to show this to a few other people. Um, but there's a good chance that you might get selected for this. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, sure. That's whatever happens, happens, I guess. And then he called me back and he's like, yeah, this is a go. Like, you need to come here. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> He's like, no. And I said, and I remember I told him, is it, should I just, can I just send you some pictures of my paintings and maybe just ship the paintings out on their own and you can send it back to me? He said, no, you, you really need to be here. And I said, that's amazing. That's uh, okay. All right. Well, and then I guess I will, I guess I will be there. And so here I am getting ready to fly back home 
to participate in this insane thing that I just never foresaw coming. I, I am I am excited and panicked. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite the journey that you've been on. Oh, I suppose so. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I'm a, a very, how do I say, what's the word? This is gonna, I, I'm not much for self-deprecation, but I've never considered myself to be particularly extraordinary or special in any kind of way. I see myself as being very average, although many would argue to the, to the opposite. I would never admit to it because <laughs> I just... I'm going to brag on your behalf. Right? <laughs> your art is extraordinary and there is a depth and an emotion to it. And I think that's what people pick up on when they look at it. And I'm so stoked. I'm so excited for this event. I can't wait to see. I'm going to be people watching 100%. I'm going to be the creeper in the corner. I apologize already. <laughs> I want to see people's reaction to your art because it is. It, it is a visceral experience looking at your art. So where can people find you if they want to see some of your art online, um, if they want to get in touch with you? I have, I have a Facebook. I don't have a website yet. Cause like I said, I'm, I've never intended my art to be anything other than just a quick dibble dabble here and there. So I, I probably need to get going on that, but uh, currently I, I have my Facebook. And if you want to, my Facebook is just my first and last name, Michael Kemp, K-E-M-P-E. The E is silent. It's not Kemp E, it's Kemp. And that's where I am. And I have a lot of my, all of my art, posted on there um and if anybody's interested in anything particular if you're interested in any pieces I, I i would be happy to create something for you thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much for having me this is a first for me so i i am flattered and honored and even more so that it's you <laughs> It was, it was my honor. Absolutely. My honor and my pleasure to have you on today. All right. Well, take care of yourself. And for all of those listening, take care of yourselves as well. If you can make it out to the Herd Museum on Veterans Day, 11-11-2022 from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., check out Michael Kemp's art. Thank you, guys. Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc. The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara Lamontagne, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support.